Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel 14. We'll go ahead and begin reading in verse 23, 1 Samuel 14, 23. 1 Samuel 14, 23 tells us uh, about the beginning of a battle that we considered uh, three weeks ago. But that battle uh, wasn't over in a short amount of time. There's more to it. And so that's where we're left in the middle of verse 23, where we're told that the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. And then in verse 24, we learn that the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. And they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse among yourselves, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. 
And he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. And the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die? who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now? Father, we do praise you and rest in your goodness. Not once have you failed us. Not once have you faltered in a promise you've made. Not once have you changed your mind or reneged on your commitment to your people. You are thoroughly good. And and Father, we, we realize no one else is like that. Nobody else is so reliable. Nobody else is so trustworthy. No one else is so wise. No one else so powerful that, that is so trustworthy, that can be trusted with all things. That, that The only person is you. You are alone in these things. You are holy and one of a kind in your goodness. And so we praise you this morning. And yet, Father, it grieves us to know that there are millions, millions upon millions of people who do not experience your goodness as the goodness of a father because they haven't given their lives to your son, Jesus Christ. They're not in Christ. And Lord, we recognize that there are probably people in this room today for whom that is true, and we're thankful that you've brought them here, Father. And I I just ask that your mercy would be so in evidence, so powerfully at work in your words today, that you would draw all people to yourself, that Christ would be exalted, that the cross would be featured, And that every single one of us, sinful though we may be, would find forgiveness and healing and hope and new birth and new life in him. God, we do pray for those who can't be here today, and I want to lift up especially Pastor Guy as he ministers in Cameroon. I ask that you would uh, just pour out your your grace in his life. I pray that you protect him physically and that you would make him effective as he ministers uh, there among the brothers and Uh, preaches the gospel to those who've never heard. Pray that you would bring souls to yourself through his ministry there. And God, for us this morning, I pray that this morning would be a time where you are lifted up and where we are built up in our faith. And we ask this on the basis of who you are as our good God and through the blood of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. People uh, often razz on preachers because of the Christian jargon that we use, the theological, religious, 
$50 words that are hard for the uninitiated to understand. Some of you have gotten on my case about that sort of thing. I really try my best not to uh, use those types of words. I try to avoid that type of language, but I'm sure I fail at least two or three times a week. And most of the time you all are gracious about it and you just move on with your day. However, it is a comfort to me to know that preachers are not the only people who do this sort of thing. Uh, If you have ever worked in an office, for example, you know that corporate jargon is all over the place. Uh, You can't make it five minutes in a conversation without comparing apples to apples or bubbling up feedback from key stakeholders or asking IT to run a one-shot to fix a data problem or reminding yourself that it is what it is. There was one particular phrase in common usage in my own department at a previous job. It took me a while to work up the courage to ask what it meant because you go into these meetings, these situations, and you don't want to act like you don't know what you're doing. And so people say things and you just sort of nod and thoughtfully, uh, you know, look down at the floor and think, I'm going to look that up later. Uh, But a coworker of mine was fond of using the phrase root cause analysis. How many of you have used this phrase in your job? Okay, a few of you. Seemed to be a solution to everything. Uh, What we need to do, he would say, is to execute a root cause analysis on this process and find out what's really causing all these quality issues. Sounds great. Okay, let's do that. But I learned that root cause analysis is a fancy way of saying, let's try to find out what the real problem is. Let's get to the root of the problem. We were trained to ask the question, why, at least five times. Like, why is this problem occurring in, in our work? Well, once we get an answer to that question, we need to ask, well, why is that happening? And, and so on and so forth down the line until you get to the root cause. And as I learned how to do this, well, it made my job extremely interesting and even productive. And I found that root cause analysis on just about anything often yielded and exposed the same types of problems. For example, one of our offshore teams had been tasked with uh, completing a process uh, on which a whole other series of functions depended. It was a critical process, and they weren't very good at getting it done. There was often a backlog. There were tons of errors and mistakes. Specific work items would age for weeks without getting done because nobody knew what to do with them. And ironically, and no one would have admitted this in our enlightened, publicly traded Fortune 500 company, but the general consensus among the members of my team was that this particular offshore team existed in a culture different from ours, and therefore they lacked the drive and the competency to really wrestle the problems into submission. And of course, our leaders knew that was hogwash. That's not the case at all. So one day, our director tasked us, a a few of us, to try to, to help, and so we executed a root cause analysis, and we began to ask why these problems were taking place. We stopped making assumptions. We began to talk with the people actually doing the work. And what we learned was that the problems didn't actually originate with that offshore team at all. No, the real problem was with us. It was with our team. It was our uncharitable assumptions. It was our incompetence. It was our self-protective attitude. It was the leaders. We hadn't provided adequate policy documents. We hadn't provided the right training. We weren't providing reasonable accountability. 
We hadn't set up a, a way for the team to ask questions when they needed clarification. And so one by one, we worked through these issues. And when we really executed that root cause analysis and got to the root of the problem and learned what that problem really was, productivity began to increase, turnaround time began to decrease, quality began to go up, and the team required less and less supervision. Now, that project was instructive for me. It taught me a lesson has traveled with me into a lot of other situations. Here's the lesson. When a team or an organization or a group or a family or a community is experiencing a breakdown in function or culture, nine times out of ten, the issue is not the people on the bottom of the organizational chart. It's not the people on the front lines doing all the work that are usually the root cause of the problem. Typically, it starts at the top. Typically, it starts with the leaders and the way that they exercise influence. The best organizations take this into account. They employ checks and balances. They make sure no, no single person has too much power and authority because if everyone is depending on one man, you can take it to the bank that he's going to let them down. He's going to disappoint. He's going to be a destructive force rather than a blessing. And folks, that's what we see in the life of King Saul here in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Saul has been given enough power, enough influence, enough authority to do some damage among the children of Israel. And it's only through God's patient mercies that he doesn't destroy himself, his son, and his armies all in one day. But Saul is not the exception. Untrustworthy leadership is part and parcel of living in this fallen world. Like we deal with it every day. And you need to know how to recognize it. You need to know the impact that it has and the only ultimate remedy. So this morning what I'd like to do is to kind of pull from this passage, first of all, the characteristics of untrustworthy leadership, the consequences of untrustworthy leadership, and then the cure for untrustworthy leadership. So let's observe together in the first place the characteristics of untrustworthy leadership. The characteristics of untrustworthy leadership. Did you notice how an off-the-cuff, capricious decision exposes the characteristics of untrustworthy leadership in verse 24? In one verse, amazingly, God has worked this mighty salvation through Jonathan and his armor bearer in the previous passage, just two guys, and they turn the tide of the battle between Israel and their enemy, the Philistines. They're on, the Philistines are on the run. They're actually turning on one another. The armies of Israel are literally growing by number, with each passing moment, they're energized by evidence of success, and yet, as commentator Dale Ralph Davis puts it, Saul shows a strange ability to turn deliverance into distress. Look what he does in verse 24. He says, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Now, this was a common sort of thing for leaders to do in the ancient Near East, but that doesn't make it any more smart than it is. It's not smart. Uh, think about it. Uh, most of the fighting is being done by young men in their 20s who had grown up working on farms. They're all skin and bones and sinews. Their metabolism is running a mile a minute. It's hot and dry. They're literally in the fight of their life. They're burning through calories faster than ever. These troops need to eat. And yet Saul decides to utter this ridiculous oath and bind anyone who eats any food with a curse. 
And yet in this one statement, we see what untrustworthy leadership often looks like. First of all, untrustworthy leaders are often self-centered. They're often self-centered. Did you notice what Saul says? He says, this is what's going to happen until what? Until I am avenged on my enemies. Did you catch that? Until I'm avenged. Like, really, Saul, you're going to make this about you? This is about the entire nation, but he made it personal. He had welded his identity to Israel's geopolitical situation, and with that subtle shift in thinking, he began to lead out of a desire to advance himself rather than a desire to serve the people he was called to lead. Untrustworthy leaders are almost always self-centered in their leadership. Uh, This is the way it often is. We use our position, our power, our rank, our influence, our authority to Not serve our community, but to serve ourselves. Like the supervisor whose top performer receives a less than exciting review because she is afraid of that person who does his job better than she does. Like the dad who never quite fulfilled his dream of being a star athlete, so he obsessively uh, relives it in the life of his son. Like the pastor who squashes the sheep who disagrees with him just because he's made an idol out of his own ministry like the politician who long ago abandoned her constituents in order to court the campaign contributions of the wealthy. I mean, we, we encounter these people all over the place, don't we? Untrustworthy leaders who are self-centered. Secondly, second characteristic of, of untrustworthy leaders, they are manipulative. They're manipulative. Uh, notice how in Saul's case, he tries to manipulate both God and man. Uh, in typical fashion, he misunderstands the nature and character of God. Uh, From start to finish, it seems as though Saul never removes this uh, assumption that God is is the the same as all the other idols and false gods worshipped by all the surrounding nations. I mean, in Saul's mind, God is very powerful, but not the creator God, because he nevertheless needs the attention and the obedience and the impressive rituals of his people. This is what Saul assumes. So he does, some, he, he does something he thinks is going to impress God and more or less obligate God to give him the victory over his enemies. Like, God, if we do this really amazing, ascetic thing, then you'll really want to give us the victory. That's not the way God works. Saul's trying to manipulate God. He tries to manipulate God. He's actually somewhat successful in manipulating the troops. Uh, Look at verse 26. When the people entered the, the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth. For the people, what? The people feared the oath. Saul knew he was dealing with superstitious people with an almost animistic view of the world. Their king had uttered a curse, and that magical incantation sort of hung over them like an axe waiting to fall and split them in two. They were being manipulated. In other words, Saul used the trappings of religion to wrestle God into submission and wrangle the people into doing what he wanted them to do. And and this is the way it always turns out with, with untrustworthy leaders. Uh, It's often, even in a secular context, it is often the trappings of religion, of ritual, of righteousness that leaders use to force people to do their bidding. Uh, In the late Middle Ages, uh, the Pope really wanted to build a nice church building in Rome. And so he found a man named Johann Tetzel 
to go around and sell indulgences in Germany and tell people that if they paid him money, that their loved one would leave purgatory and go to heaven. And it worked amazingly well. I mean, the the gold and silver was raked in by the ton until a a monk named Martin Luther blew the top off the whole scam. Even in the secular world, this happens. You remember four or five years ago, uh, the Dieselgate scandal? Uh, The Volkswagen company was advertising clean diesel technology, and so they're playing into this desire of all of us to be clean and to be good for the environment, and they marketed their vehicles in this way, and later we learned that the engineering team at Volkswagen had designed a device to trick the EPA and they were completely lying about all of it. These engines were spewing out noxious gases into the atmosphere with every grocery run. This is what leaders who are untrustworthy often do. They manipulate the people that they're called to lead. They grow impatient with their constituents or their customers or their community, and they try to find ways to force their hand. Third characteristic of untrustworthy leaders, they're self-centered, they're manipulative. In the third place, they often drive from behind rather than leading from the front. Have you noticed this? This is what Saul does. Uh, His vow is really impressive. It seems really costly. But who is really the one who suffers? It's who, who are the people who are bearing the brunt? It's the people who are at the front lines carrying their sickles and their pitchforks into the front lines. They're the ones left in misery. Saul is just kind of directing things from the rear. He doesn't, doesn't cost him anything except maybe a, uh, a little bit of pain in his stomach to not eat that day. But for them, they were faint. Their lives were at risk. Saul risks Not his life, but the lives of his people. Compare that with Jonathan. He puts himself in harm's way. He risks his life to serve the people, whereas Saul sits back in comfort. The awkward and uncomfortable truth with all of this is that even in the church, the church is not the exception often. Sometimes it follows the rule. When an organization is in crisis, the harshness, the manipulation, the self-protective measures, they reach a fever pitch. Pastors uh, begin to use the pulpit in order to browbeat their opponents or to guilt church members into giving to a pet project. Deacons and elders lie to each other. They try to entrap each other. Suspicion and intrigue run rampant, and everyone looks out for his own interests. You never know who might be gossiping about you, and this kind of thing can happen even in the church. Of course, you know, this type of leadership can gain a foothold in your family, too. Your teenager does something you find embarrassing, and the barbs begin to come out, and before long, you're giving people the silent treatment, and you're bringing up everybody's faults in front of their friends and neighbors, and you're retreating into yourself. Here's a rule of thumb. When you find yourself, like Saul, relying on carrots and sticks appealing to people's baser emotions, their fear, their pain, their shame or pleasure. When you look back on the last week or month and you find that more days than not you spent in anger and bitterness toward the people who look to you for leadership, it may be the case that you're becoming this type of leader, an untrustworthy tyrant like Saul. See, when you lead your family or your team at work, your your group of friends, your community group, your church, ask yourself the question, is it out of self-centeredness or is it out of a desire to serve? 
Have you relied on manipulation or do you patiently persuade and allow other people to decide for themselves? Have you risked the safety and reputation and well-being of others more than you've risked your own reputation and safety and well-being? We're told that power corrupts, but the truth is that power exposes. It's like the warm sun on the surface of a garden. The sun doesn't create weeds or tomatoes or peppers or dandelions or briars. It simply draws forth what is already there in seed form. And that's why we need a better leader. That's why we need a better king. Because when we get a little bit of authority and we find ourselves in these situations, those untrustworthy characteristics begin to come out. Because even under ideal circumstances, every human leader is going to be more or less of a disappointment, more or less of a danger to the people that he is called to serve. So we need a better king. We've seen some of the characteristics of untrustworthy leadership, but consider with me in the second place the consequences of untrustworthy leadership. The consequences of untrustworthy leadership. One little decision, one foolish vow, and the determination to follow through with it, the stubbornness to follow through with it rather than simply repenting and moving on leads to all manner of of difficulty for God's people. And actually, Saul's example shows us three specific consequences of untrustworthy leadership. Uh, First of all, look at what Jonathan, Jonathan says in verse 29 about Saul's decision. Uh, He's broken the oath without realizing it. The people warn him about it, but then his response in verse 29 sort of sums up the first problem that arises from Saul's decision. See if you can uh, pick it out from what Jonathan says. He says, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people of their enemies... uh, uh, the people had, had, had pulled the, uh, uh, had, had taken the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Saul's vow had actually made it harder for the children of Israel to win the battle. So here's the first consequence of untrustworthy leadership untrustworthy leaders prevent God's people from fruitful living. They prevent God's people from fruitful living. God delivered Israel that day. He set them up for success. Uh, The people are ready to go out and win a great victory. They're ready to reap a great harvest. They're ready to follow God's lead into the battle. But then the very person who should have been out in front, who should have been leading them into battle, is the one who makes it hard for them to succeed with this vow. Have you ever seen that happen in your life with the leaders that, that you deal with every day? It happens all the time. Have you ever met a Christian who is so hurt, so harmed by an abusive leader that she can barely function in the church. Doesn't this happen all the time? Often this is the case in our churches and our families. Uh, I want to talk to the men for just a moment about this. Men, is it possible that your leadership in your home has made it difficult for your wife and your children to live fruitful lives, to be as fruitful as they might be. Like, they're winning the battle, they're getting the victory, but the victory hasn't been great. Have you been troubling the land in your home, just like Saul's been doing here in 1 Samuel 14? Now, I'm preaching to myself as much as to anyone else, but believe, uh, but, but, but if, we, if we want peop- the people that God has given into our care 
to be gatherers of a great harvest for the Lord, then we need to get out of the way so that the victory can be great. We've got to encourage them. We've got to remind them that they are equipped to win. We've got to tell them the battle is theirs, that they can do it. We have to encourage them. Don't give up. Keep going. We need you in the fight. What you're doing matters. It is important. We would be nowhere without you. That's the kind of encouragement people need from us. But are we in their way? Are we making it hard for those that God has called us to lead to be fruitful in their service of the Lord Jesus Christ? We've got to make sure they've got plenty to eat. Physically, yes, obviously, but spiritually. Men, if your wife is the one that's always dragging everybody to church while you go and do something you think is more important, you know what you're doing? You're preventing your family from being as fruitful as they might be in the service of the Lord. You be the consistent one. You make it a point to be here, to engage in a, in a class, to participate in a community group. You lead your family in a time of family worship after dinner before everybody goes to school and work. You want to know why your kids are struggling, why your wife is always feeling afraid. It may be because that you've cut them off from the level of fruitfulness that they might have if you had led them in the way that God is calling you to lead. Now, I know you don't like to be beat up. I know you don't like to hear rebuke. But think about what could be possible if you began to be that man that followed Jesus in your leadership, a man of integrity and discipline, a man who serves, a man who makes sure that his family has the spiritual nourishment they need to gain the victory today. How about in our church? Are we reaping this type of consequence? I've been a part of churches where people aren't as fruitful as they ought to be because every time, every single time that they go to use their gifts to serve, somebody says, excuse me, who do you think you are? Have you ever been a part of a church like that? It's not thank you for taking the time to paint that Sunday school room. It's, hey, I I wish you would have consulted me because we, we really needed to have a conversation about which color was best. Instead of, hey, I I really appreciate the time commitment that you make to play in the band. It's, can I give you some advice about music that's actually totally irrelevant to anyone's spiritual growth, but it just totally reflects my personal preferences? That would never happen in our church, I'm sure. But no, in all seriousness, it's very easy for churches to become a place where people go around and they, they pop each other's balloons, you know? You're happy, you're... On track serving the Lord, I'm going to come by and discourage you. May it never be. Can we just make a rule? This is, we can't really make a rule about this, but this would be a nice rule to have. You're not allowed to say anything discouraging, anything corrective, until you've said 10 encouraging things first. That would be nice. Uh, We can't make that rule, but it, it would be good to discipline ourselves in that way because our attitude, the way that we're leading in these communities, it makes it hard for people to be as fruitful as they might be. And this is what Saul does. Uh, Most of you know I grew up in the Northeast. We can be a little harsh with each other up there. I've had my fair share of meetings in the church where everyone was scowling and you you never knew who was going to stand up and call somebody else out. I remember going to my first members meeting at our church in Louisville when we had moved to Kentucky. Uh, The the children's ministry team stood up and the leader of the team was sharing some details about what was taking place in the children's ministry in the Sunday school. Uh, she, she gave an update on the ministry. She asked for some volunteers. And uh, right towards the end of that presentation, a woman sitting two or three pews in front of me raised her hand. And I thought, okay, here we go. 
is here it comes. But instead of making an accusation or asking an unkind question, she said, I just want to say how thankful we are that you guys are doing what you're doing. You're really good at it. You're doing a great job, and we appreciate you, and we're thankful for you. I mean, I was, I was blown away, but here's what had happened. That church had decided to tell themselves a story, a story that we need to tell ourselves. God loved us and sent his son to take away our sin and to bring us into a new family created in Christ Jesus for good works. And that changes my outlook on who I am in Christ and who these people are in my church family. And so I'm going to be encouraging and I'm going to, I'm going to bless people so that they're as fruitful as they could possibly be. And that story began to bleed into the way that they interacted with one another. And it had actually become more normal for them to encourage each other than it was for them to criticize. And guess what that does? It makes the victory great, doesn't it? It makes us all more fruitful. Indian Creek, is that how we are in our church? I hope it is. I hope we are. I think it is. I think, I think our church is this way. I hope that I'm one of the people that instead of, instead of preventing God's people from being a fruitful person, from, from being fruitful in God's service, I actually help people be as fruitful as they could possibly be. Let's not be like Saul, an untrustworthy leader. Uh, first consequence of untrustworthy leadership, uh, they prevent God's people from fruitful living. Second consequence, untrustworthy leaders provoke God's people to sin. Untrustworthy leaders provoke God's people to sin. Look at what takes place in verses 31 and following. Uh, the people manage to gain the victory. They're fainting, they're famished, and uh, yet they finally win, and they, and they beat back the Philistines from the hill country into the low plains, and, and they're crazy with hunger. And so what happens in verses 31 and following? They fall on the spoil, and they, they begin to like tear into these uh, animals, the livestock, like a herd of hungry velociraptors or something like that. I mean, remember, these are young men, and they're on the adrenaline rush of their life, and their blood is up, and they're incredibly hungry. And so, yes, this is kind of gross to us uh, sitting here in our air-conditioned building, but if you can imagine this group of undisciplined, uh, deputized farmhands beside themselves with hunger and high on victory, and you can see how something like this might happen. The scene is just this bloodbath of people just tearing into these animals. See, to us, this is just not a pleasant picture. It's kind of gross. But to the nation of Israel living under the Mosaic Covenant, for them to eat the flesh with the blood, it was anathema. This was absolutely forbidden under the Old Covenant. So this is a great sin against the Lord. And, and make no mistake, everybody who chose to do this is responsible for his own decisions. No question about it. But think about this. It would never have happened if it weren't for Saul's rash vow. They would have never been tempted in this way. Do your root cause analysis. Why did the people sin? Well, because they were hungry. Why were the people hungry? Because Saul made a foolish vow. Why did Saul make a foolish vow? Why did he create this foolish oath? Because he was leading selfishly and manipulatively and oppressively. They chose to sin, sure, but he provoked them to sin. And this, friends, is what untrustworthy leadership, uh, leaders do. They provoke God's people to sin. 
They create circumstances in which it is very, very difficult not to fall into sin. I'm reminded of what Paul uh, tells fathers in Colossians chapter 3. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children. Now, why fathers? Why does he say that to fathers? Because the fathers are the leaders in the home. Amen. We have a particular powerful sway over our children and their demeanor. We, we, have, we, we use that power so often, that authority, in ways that provoke discouragement, anger, and yes, sin in the lives of our children, don't we? Well, let me ask you this. Is it more difficult or less difficult to avoid sin when you're around, when you're in charge, when you're leading? Is it easier to sin or is it easier not to sin? You say, well, if my kids weren't so rebellious, then this wouldn't be taking place. If my wife would just do what I asked. And this is why this particular consequence of leadership is so seductive to us for those who lead because in our stubbornness and in our pride we immediately want to point out the fact that that other person actually did sin yes it was wrong of that family to gossip about you and then ghost you in your community group they should not have done that but did you make it easier for them to do what was right or did you make it harder did you create a foothold for satan did you isolate them so that they were more vulnerable to the pool of the world did you frustrate them how about we make it easy for our people, the people that we're called to lead, to do what's right? You know, folks, we don't need to speak to our kids in a harsh, unkind, frustrating way. That's not necessary. We can discipline. We can be strict. We can be, uh, expect great things of our young people. That doesn't mean we need to be harsh because when we do that, it's like we're throwing a banana peel right in their path, right where they're about to step, and we're saying, hey, don't slip. Oh, you slipped. We don't need to call people out in front of other people so that they feel defensive and that, like we have them in a chicken wing, right? That provokes them to sin. That provokes them to be angry. It's not necessary. It doesn't help. We don't need to give our kids cell phones without any accountability or supervision. They're not ready for that. That doesn't help them to do what's right. It helps them sin. We don't need to keep our families isolated and separated from the body of Christ because we've got a grudge against a brother or because we haven't found the perfect church yet. That doesn't help them not to sin. That helps them, that provokes them to sin. And it shows when we put our families and our churches and our communities in a place where they're likely to sin that we're untrustworthy leaders. Untrustworthy leaders prevent God's people from leading fruitful lives. They provoke God's people to sin. Third consequence, untrustworthy leaders pit themselves against the people of God. They pit themselves against the people of God. Now, the writer of our book, of 1 Samuel, is a master storyteller, far better than anybody else I know, uh, and he knows exactly how to set up the scene. Look at verse 36. The people have gained the victory. Their bellies are full. They're past that situation where they had been eating the meat with the blood, and, and Saul did correct that. They survived by the skin of their teeth, not because of his leadership, but in spite of his leadership. And just when they've eaten their fill, and they're sitting around the fire, and they're relaxing, up comes King Saul in verse 36. Hey, let's go down to the Philistines and, and by night plunder them until morning, and let's not leave a man of them. So can you picture this scene? 
Look around at all these soldiers. They, they look half dead. I mean, it's pretty much like what we... No, I'm just totally joking, okay? But no, they're exhausted. Their eyes are red. They're, they're covered with sores and scrapes and bruises. They can barely move. They have literally been through the war. And up walks King Saul in his royal robes and his hair is quaffed just right and his skin is bright and clean, fresh from a long nap and a soak in the tub. Hey, you guys ready to finish this tonight? Let's do it. And look at their response. Yeah, you know they can't say what they really think. So they say, do what seems good to you. Like, you do you, Saul. If you say, let's go kill these guys, technically we can't say no to you. You are the king. Do whatever you think is best, Saul. The priest steps up wisely. Hang on, we need to pray about this. Right, of course, yes, we do. Saul prays. God doesn't answer. By the way, this is becoming Saul's MO, isn't it? He's always seeking, always looking for guidance, and God isn't giving it to him. Indicative of a problem. So Saul jolts them out of their reverie and, and says, hey, somebody must have sinned. When I find out who it is, they're going to die. And, and once again, their response to him in verse 39 speaks volumes. Uh, we're told there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Like, maybe if I just keep staring into the fire, he will walk away and we can get some sleep tonight. But Saul's not done. He wants to find out who sinned. Of course, it was pretty obvious who really messed up that day, but Saul can't see it. He says, you all stand over there. Jonathan, my son, and I will stand over here. Notice the response again in verse 40. Do what seems good to you. Whatever, King Saul. We have to do what you say. Lucky us. Finally, everybody learns who broke the oath. Saul condemns his own son to death. His son who had been the real leader that day. His son who had actually trusted the Lord. His son who had put himself in harm's way for the sake of the nation. And finally, the people have had enough. They work up the courage to say, okay, Saul, we're done. We're not playing this game anymore. We can't take it anymore. No, you are not going to put Jonathan to death. He is the whole reason we won the battle today. Do you not get what is going on? Like they are, they are done. Have you ever noticed how this happens with untrustworthy leaders? They pit themselves against the people of God. Have you seen this happen in real life? Uh, in Saul's case, he does two things. He persecutes the godly. The one person really doing what he was supposed to do is Jonathan, and he almost kills him. Uh, this is a sure sign of a foolish leader. He singles out godly people, and he gets rid of them. Uh, and then... He alienates all the rest of the people. And this little twist is dripping with irony. Uh, did you notice what happened here? There are several layers. First of all, remember all the way back to the beginning of Saul's reign, he, he goes out and people don't trust him. And yet he calls the, uh, the soldiers from all the 12 tribes and they go out against the, uh, the people, uh, uh, the, the Ammonites, and he gains a victory, and then all the people are like, let's kill the traitors, the people who didn't believe in you, the naysayers. Let's round them all up, and we'll execute them. And what does Saul do? He says, nobody's going to die today because God's wrought a great victory among us. And now notice in this passage, it's the exact opposite, isn't it? Saul's become the tyrant. He's the one out for blood, and not the blood of a traitor, the blood of a hero who happens to be his own son. And the people have to rescue Jonathan from him. So very quickly, there's this reversal. He's lost his way. But then notice in verse 44 what he says. 
He says, God do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. What does that mean? You ever talk that way? God do so to me, and more also. Never heard anybody speak in this way in, in modern times, but here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you don't die, may God kill me. And, and the people, they ransom Jonathan, which, which means Saul has just pronounced his own violent death. And actually, it doesn't happen here, but eventually, Saul is going to be the demise of his son Jonathan as well. So what's going on here is this foreshadowing that, that Saul has He's just fallen into this untrustworthy style of leadership so far that he's actually condemning himself. He's a horrible leader. He's untrustworthy. And so what happens? He prevents the people from doing what, he, what God wants them to do. He, he provokes them to sin. He pits himself against them. He finds himself utterly alone, and it's only going to get worse. And keep in mind, this is the best leader that the world had to offer. Head and shoulders above the people well-bred, wealthy, tall and strong, successful in battle. And folks, this is why we need a better king. Amen. Because whether it's Saul or anybody else, the best leaders the world has to offer are going to fail. And so that leads us past the characteristics of untrustworthy leadership and the consequences of untrustworthy leadership to the cure for untrustworthy leadership. You read a text like this, and the simplistic way to read it would be to say, okay, I am going to try this week not to be like Saul. I'll try not to be selfish. I'll try not to manipulate other people. I'll try not to drive them from behind. I'll try to lead from the front. But here's the problem. You might be different from Saul in the specifics, but, but if that is your takeaway, then you're going to end up hurting people too. You're going to end up being a destructive force too because the only variable between you and Saul is how much power you actually have. So if you had the same amount of influence that he had, the, the chances are good that you would harm people just as badly as Saul did. So we've got to go deeper than that. By the way, the world recognizes this. Almost everybody sees this. Uh, at the risk of oversimplification, this is the problem that philosophical movements like critical theory are meant to address. They see that when one person or one group possesses all the power and the authority, they're going to build systems that, that grow that power and keep everybody else down. That's the way it is. So the solution becomes, hey, you've got too much power, and I know you're never going to give it up on your own, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to take it from you. And then what we have in the world is this kind of power struggle between different groups of people, and it just breaks down our whole society. This is the kind of thing that we see in the world today, isn't it? And by the way, what are we going to do with that power once we get it from the powerful people? We're going to do the same thing. And that's why I keep saying that we need a better king. See, this whole book is written in part to spoil our appetite for the kings of this world, for a king who looks the part, to fan and to flame a hunger for the king after God's own heart. We're getting to that point in the story where Samuel is going to go out under God's direction and find a better king, a, a king who doesn't look impressive at first, but God sees his heart, and he's going to anoint David and, and start a new dynasty through David, but even David and his sons are going to fall way short until someone comes from outside the system, a new Adam, a new David, 
the Son of God himself, King Jesus. That's the only solution, guys. And what I'm saying is that you need the right king. Israel's already tried no king. That was the book of Judges. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was no king in the land. And it was wonderful, right? No. Everybody was killing each other. It was a violent time. They were worse than the pagan nations surrounding them. And so then they tried the world's king. And how's that working out for them? Not any better. No, what we need is God's king. A king who didn't come to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. A king who goes before us to the cross. A king who doesn't take, but gives himself for the life of the world. You know, we didn't really learn that well from the Israelites, did we? We've tried, we want to try no king as well. We want to try the world's king. We want to try to be our own king. Folks, it, all of that is going to lead us to the same place. Chaos, violence, disappointment, destruction, isolation. Why not turn to the one true king? King Jesus, if he's not your king, your Lord, your master, your rescuer, would you turn to him today? Make him your king. Let's pray together. Father, please forgive us for deceiving ourselves into thinking that we had the righteousness and the competence to lead ourselves, our families, and our community without you. That is rebellion of the first order. And so, Father, we, we ask that you would forgive us. And we know that the only way that that's possible is through the precious, matchless blood of your son Jesus, who gave his life on the cross and then rose from the dead to be our forever king. Lord, I pray that each one of us would stop running, stop reigning our own lives and give you your proper place. Lord, I pray that each one of us would make King Jesus our king. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.